Welcome to Summation, a voyage through 35 years of great science fiction short stories as collected in Gardner Dozois' reprint anthology series, The Year's Best Science Fiction. This episode, you'll want to take a closer look at the ingredients on that can of chicken soup after hearing about Avram Davidson's full chicken richness. I'm Jake, your host. Come with me as we traverse space, time, and imagination in search of each year's best science fiction. Evram Davidson had a long career as an author, stretching from his first publications in the 1950s until the 1990s. According to his website, he published 19 novels and over 200 other shorter works. The information I've been able to gather about him paints him as a sometimes difficult and temperamental person, and he's often described as not having achieved financial success, despite being highly regarded by other writers and having won the Hugo Award and several World Fantasy Awards for his fiction. Having served as a Marine in World War II, he actually began writing as a Talmudic scholar in the 1950s. Eventually, though, in the 1970s, he converted to the Tenrikyo religion. This is a Japanese new religion, and uh, it sounds really fascinating. The Wikipedia page is definitely worth a read if you're interested. According to Wikipedia, he was actually married in the home of Damon Knight, another notable science fiction author. Many of the sources that I was able to find note that his work defies categorization and crosses boundaries of genre and style. I think this Wikipedia quote sums up the tone of the other sources as well in maybe not quite such a complimentary way, but in one that is representative of how iconoclastic people described him. Uh, The Wikipedia article says, Especially in his later works, Davidson included elements that beginning writers are told to avoid, such as page-long sentences with half a dozen colons and semicolons, or an apparently irrelevant digression in the opening pages of a story. Davidson passed away in 1993. Some of his work was published posthumously. His most recent collection was available in 2005. Now for the summary of Full Chicken Richness. Full Chicken Richness starts out as a slice-of-life story about an artist, Fred, who paints dilapidated buildings. He refuses to paint more profitable work and so ends up spending much of his time at a downscale diner where he gets wrapped up in a mystery. What makes the chicken soup taste so good? Against the backdrop of colorful characters and the small dramas that take place in the diner, Fred slowly unravels the mystery. First, finding out that the diner owner has been buying the base for his soup from a mysterious character who comes in and out of the diner through the back door. The stranger reminds Fred of a man he met in a foreign city who was widely respected and seemed somehow mystical. Eventually, Fred tracks the origin of the soup to a factory, where he finds the door unlocked. Entering, he explores until he finds a contraption that seems to be a window across space and time. As baffled as we are on reading this, so is Fred. He watches as a dodo bird emerges from it and walks into the killing floor on the factory. He has finally discovered the secret ingredient that gives the soup full chicken richness. For the reading this week, I'm going to read a selection from the story where Davidson is describing the people who hang out in the diner that Fred frequents. He was likely to find there at any given time of late morning a number of regulars, such as, well, there was Tilly, formerly Ottilly, with red cheeks, her white hair looking windblown even on windless days. Tilly had her own little routine, which consisted of ordering coffee and toast. With the toast came a small plastic container of jelly, 
and this she spread on one of the slices of toast. That eaten, she would hesitantly ask Rudolfo if she could might have more jelly, adding that she would pay for it. Rudolfo would hand her one or two or three more. She would tentatively offer him a palm of pennies and nickels, and he would politely decline them. Fred was much moved by this little drama, but after the twelfth and succeeded repetitions, it left him motionless. Once, he was to encounter Tilly in a disused doorway downtown, standing next to a hat with money while she played and played beautifully, endless Strauss waltzes on that rather un-Strauss-like instrument, the harmonica. Also unusually present in La Bonne Burger, in the 40 minutes before the noon rush, were Volodya and Carl. They were sort of twosome there, that is, they were certainly not a twosome elsewhere. Carl was tall and had long blonde hair and a long blonde beard, and was already at his place along the counter when Volodya walked in. Carl never said anything to Volodya. Volodya always said anything to Carl. Volodya was wide and gnarly, and had small pale eyes like those of a malevolent pig. Among the things he called Carl were Popa, Moskui, Samarachvnik, meaning, Fred Hopkins found out by and by, priest, inhabitant of Moscow, and one who for immoral purposes pretends to be a chimney sweep. Fred tried by and by to dissuade Volodya of this curious delusion. He's a Minnesota Swede, Fred explained, but Volodya would have none of it. He's a Russian Arthodox priest, was his explosive comeback, and he went on to denounce the last Tsar of Russia as having been in the pay of the Freemasons. Carl always said nothing, munched away as droplets of egg congealed on his beard. And there was, in La Bonne Burger, often, breakfast fast on a single sausage and a cup of tea, an old oriental man dressed as though for the winters of Manchuria. Once Fred had, speaking slowly and clearly, asked him to please pass the ketchup. Say I ain't deef, said the little old man, in tones of purest American Gothic. This story is really strange. It has a kind of Lovecraftian offness, where there isn't anything through the bulk of the story that you could point to as particularly confusing, yet I left the experience feeling somewhat puzzled. I think the summary I've presented here is somewhat misleading. As it boils down the plot to the basic events, it doesn't show how actually mysterious it all feels. The end of the story is really confusing on first reading. It's not at all clear that the contraption the artist finds is a window back in time and across space. It was pretty opaque to me what was actually being described in the text. Especially on first reading, I was less able to track the plot and understand that the artist was trying to figure out what made the chicken soup taste good. And that's basically all that's driving his curiosity. Between the first time and the second time I read the story, it's been a year or so, and I have to say that I forgot the ending. I think this shows how confused I was that first time. For most of the second reading, I thought the secret ingredient was going to turn out to be dinosaurs. It really wasn't clear to me that it was Dodo, which seems impossible now that I've read it again because of how the author describes the creature that comes out of the portal actually making a do-do sound. Maybe it was just my own internal inability to understand what was happening. I expected dinosaurs, so maybe that first time I read the story, I thought it must be a dinosaur. And after all, dinosaurs and birds are related, so the description of a bird maybe made it work in my head somehow? I'm not sure, but it was confusing. I can't help but wonder if this is some kind of weird trend for the 70s and 80s. After all, Howard Waldrop won awards for his story about Dodo alternate history a few years before this story was published. 
What is it about the dodo that draws a seemingly disproportionate amount of the imagination of science fiction writers of that period in that 1970s and 80s part of the 20th century? Maybe part of it is that the world of science fiction writers was relatively small and people passed around ideas and talked about things with each other and the dodo was just one of those things. Despite all of this confusion, I find myself quite positive on the story in the end. I like the characters in the diner and the story keeps a kind of wry tone throughout. Several of the little moments in the diner made me chuckle, and the ending of the story is ultimately pretty funny once you understand it, that a guy built a space-time portal just so he could make substandard soup out of dodo meat. That's funny, and once you know that you're supposed to read the story with that in mind, it's a lot easier to let go of the desire to figure out the mystery and see that actually the story is in many ways taking the piss out of the mysterious trappings of that Lovecraftian-style fiction. The story makes a nice counterpoint to the heavier stories in the collection, and I like its place here in the volume. Now it's time to put the story in the rankings. So do I think the story is better than Manifest Destiny? Yes. Vulcan's Forge, I think I like it more. Cicada Queen, even though Cicada Queen is at sixth place, I'm not sure it belongs there, but that's where it's sitting right now. I think I like the story better than that and Hard Fought. And I, I don't think I like it better than Beyond the Dead Reef. So I think I'm going to put that story right there at spot now, number four, Full Chicken Richness. Next time, in an episode that will have the psychologists rolling their eyes all the way back, it's a love triangle with only two people involved in science fiction legend Robert Silverberg's Multiples. That's all for this episode. Rest in peace, Gardner Dozois and Avram Davidson. Music, writing, and production by me.